Welcome to the Being Giants podcast, a show by academics for academics. I'm one of your hosts, Joyce Yeager, and today I'm speaking with Dr. Lisa White. We'll talk about Lisa's very classic academic career, from undergraduate to graduate student to professor and then to associate dean. And then we'll discuss why and how she took a turn later in her career. Today, Lisa is the Director of Education and Outreach at the University of California's Museum of Paleontology, or UCMP. We'll talk about Lisa's career, including the role of good mentors while she was an intern during undergrad at the U.S. Geological Survey, or USGS, and during graduate school. We'll also discuss some of the diversity and inclusion, or DEI, work Lisa has been working on her entire career. We'll have links in the show notes to some of the UCMP's education websites Lisa has been working on, as well as a link to the No Time for Silence website, which is a call to action for an anti-racist science community from geoscientists of color, which Lisa helped lead. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoy the show. My guest is Dr. Lisa White. Lisa is Assistant Director of Education and Outreach at the University of California, Berkeley's Museum of Paleontology. Lisa is a diatom researcher, and prior to joining the University of California Museum of Paleontology, she was a professor at San Francisco State University, where she also served as department chair and an associate dean. Lisa earned her Bachelor of Science in Geology from San Francisco State University and her PhD from the University of California, Santa Cruz in Earth Sciences. Lisa's work currently focuses on education and outreach, and she has been very involved in increasing diversity, equity, and inclusion in the geosciences since the beginning of her career. Lisa, thanks so much for being on the show. And is that all fair? That's fair. That's a great introduction. Thank you so much. You included a lot of detail, so thank you. That's great. So to start out with, can you walk us through how you ended up getting involved in geosciences and how you got interested in science in general. Sure, sure. And, you know, everyone has a story. And I often start with the path that wasn't typical uh, for me that you often see, particularly in paleontologists. Uh, They'll often share, especially the vertebrate paleontologists, you know, the dinosaur specialists will say, oh, I knew from the time I was a little kid, I knew all the dinosaur names, I knew that's what I wanted to do. And that was not me. I mean, I loved museums as a child, and I was always intrigued by science, but I didn't see myself as a scientist. I was really more interested in the arts and photography. And I have two older sisters, and they were very much into the arts, and I was following them a lot into music. And and in my case, I loved photography. Uh, And so when I entered college at San Francisco State as an undergrad, I chose uh, art as a major and photography as the, the concentration. And I really wanted to be, you know, the black female Ansel Adams. I love nature photography. And I thought, oh, you know, I could see myself doing this. There's a, um, you know, there's a, a very adventurous side to me. And I thought it just seemed like such a, a great kind of career, you know, to be able to travel places and make these awesome photographs. So as I was trying to build, you know, a portfolio and figure out how it was going to enter this profession, um, I took a geology class for a general education requirement at San Francisco State for for a science requirement. And I was realizing at that time that, you know, I clearly needed to build some additional skills. And if I was going to be an expert 
in landscape and nature photography, then maybe I should learn something about the landscape, you know? So sometimes it was a, a bit simple as that a bit, and just my reasoning of taking um, geology. And so I, I just really connected with the subject, and, and it actually brought back um, to the surface, you know, in, in me some initial love that I had um, of at least scientific material. So growing up in San Francisco, uh, we lived very close to Golden Gate Park and the California Academy of Sciences. And so my introduction to museums was through that. And yeah, I was always just really curious about what I was seeing on display, but I didn't associate it with a career at all. And the, some of the work that I do now, uh, really trying to engage audiences that are not as connected to earth science with what our subject is all about, we talk about that critical incident. So, you know, maybe there was one class in my case, or a field trip, or a museum that totally inspired the person to want to know more. And so in my case, yeah, it was really a combination of that course and then also an internship. So I interned at the U.S. Geological Survey in Menlo Park, which is in the Bay Area, and it was there that I began to meet professional paleontologists and female paleontologists. And so I received a lot of inspiration from them and a, a, a more of a connection that, oh, you know, they have some role models and could possibly do this. And was that while you were an undergrad? Yeah, so at San Francisco State, one of the California State University campuses. So, and I recognize I was fortunate because there really, it wasn't commonplace in those days to have a research experience as an undergraduate. It's of course fully expected now, especially for students that want to go on to graduate careers to show you have that experience. And you know, once again, I, I happened into opportunities that I didn't plan for and I valued really all of the instructors that I had at San Francisco State at that time who encouraged me to apply for internships, and so that was an additional part, um, really, of what shaped me at the undergraduate level. And, and not to get ahead of ourselves, but when I came back to San Francisco State as a faculty member, because little did I know, you know, they were tracking me while I was in graduate school and really reached out to me as I was finishing my PhD to encourage me to apply for a position. And so, yeah, with, it was six years between the time I finished my undergraduate degree and then returned with my PhD as faculty. And so then I'm looking around thinking, oh, we're peers now. This is so weird. And it was strange. Oh, yeah, with all your undergrad <laughs> professors. Oh, yeah. And I thought, oh, I used to talk about one of them. I did not like your class. I thought, <laughs> let me not say that on my first day of work. But <laughs> wow. mm -hmm, that kind of full circle. Yeah. So I guess let's see if we can back up. So you interned at USGS, yep. and that sounds like it was with paleontologists. So you were yes. already kind of going. Going in, in the soft rock geology carbonates, or yes, something that was um, marine geoscience focused, yes. And so was it while you were at USGS that you decided, oh, I think I'll go get a PhD? Or like, how did you end up transitioning um, to a PhD? Okay, so um, my father, my late father, as it was a professor. Uh, in fact, when I was a, um, a kid, uh, he 
taught, I was a professor at a number of public universities in California at Long Beach State and also at San Francisco State. And then from the early 70s, when the University of California at Irvine was just a brand new campus. He was one of the founding faculty members in social science. Uh, he, his degree was in psychology, and he really helped establish the whole discipline of black psychology and cross-cultural psychology. And so w watching him work over the years, and my mother's degree is in nursing, and she was very active in public health nursing, working with community programs and with youth. So I, of course, you know, watched them work and all that they gave to community efforts. But I, and seeing my father work at the professor, professorial level, but again, never connected that uh, with my trajectory at all. You know, working at the USGS was really enjoyable. And I thought, oh, I could just be a technician here or lab support. Yeah, it's I'm from a high achieving family, but it's not like I had a whole bunch of ambitions. I, I'm the go with the flow type. You know, I'm the youngest kid that just, yeah, didn't feel a lot of pressure in choosing a career. And I'm just thankful to my parents for that and my, my sisters as well. I mean, just for letting us find our course. But the but the Ph.D. question is a great one that I appreciate just making the decision to go to graduate school because it was my mentor, uh, one of the women geologists that I met at the USGS whose specialty was micropaleontology. And she had gone to UC Santa Cruz and she kept asking, you know, she plant the seed early. I interned at the USGS for four full years, I think, four full summers as an undergrad. And pretty much from that second summer on, this woman would not let up. Are you applying to graduate school? Are you, you know, making a plan? Do you know what you want to do? And okay, so kudos to this woman who I'm still in touch with. She lives in the Bay Area. And honestly, Joyce, I applied so she would get off my back. Thought if this woman asked me one more time what I'm going to do, I don't know. But she wouldn't take I don't know for an answer. I thought even my parents, you know, my father's a professor and he's not on my case. But this woman won't let up. So I thought, okay, I, I'm just going to make her happy. I still don't know what I want to do, but I'll just put it out there. That's, again, I go with the flow. Okay, you suggest I do this. I'll try it out, and we'll see what happens. And the responses were great. You know, I applied to maybe a small number of schools, maybe four, four or five. And I, yeah, five, and I got in four of them. And Santa Cruz was top of the list. Uh, and partly, you know, because of her encouragement and the connectedness through her. But, you know, I realized at that time, Alice, I was finishing my bachelor's degree, the focus in paleontology, that I really did love micropaleontology and, you know, deep marine sedimentary rocks. And uh, Bob Garrison, who was my professor and chief advisor at Santa Cruz, was just a, a gem of a person and is we're still in touch and it it just seemed like it was going to be the right fit to go to santa cruz and again first i thought well i'll get my masters and and again shame on me for setting all these low expectations right when i'm in a position now where i'm students aim for the sky do you can go for it and i just kind of plotted along but sometimes my philosophy was well i won't be disappointed you know let me just aim in the middle 
if I see great, that's fine, but it's all good. But it, it just worked. It was a, a great place for me. I was part of a fantastic lab, and it was fun too, being somewhat the, the sole paleontologist in what was the sedimentology lab. So that was fun, and I think it really set me on a great path to always work across disciplines and you know be part of teams where you know providing that crucial age information was you know central to to solving all kinds of geological problems yeah oh, and i totally hadn't appreciated that you felt more of a paleontologist in kind of a sedimentology world during mm -hmm. grad school mm -hmm. and it's nice because it set me up for the position i would eventually take at san francisco state where I taught all across the curriculum from the traditional paleontology, historical geology courses that the paleontologist in the department teaches, but I also taught oceanography and um, contributed to the stratigraphy classes and general ed. So, so yes, it, but it was, I really valued having that perspective of being in you know, a sedimentology lab, but being the paleontologist in, in the lab. Yeah. And I guess one thing I would love to also touch on is like, I guess you and I met at the Bob Garrison weekend. Yes. Um, and it, I was really struck. So there was like a field trip and kind of yes. like a conference kind of celebrating his life's work. Yep. And I was really struck by how many of his students from kind of your yes. um, academic generation were there and right. hanging out and kind of just saying how awesome of a mentor he was. And there was so mm -hmm. much talking about his good mentorship. And I wonder if right. you, you know, like, it's not something that you hear a ton in academia. Mm -hmm. It's like, wow, this person is really celebrated as a scientist and a mentor. And like, do you right. have any thoughts about what makes Bob Garrison such a great mentor? I do, and of course appreciate that question as well. And it, and it's interesting now. There are whole books written on mentorship, advice to professors and people in leadership positions about guiding students. And I sense that, you know, in the in the eighties when I was in graduate school, there really weren't a lot of guides, especially for you know, old, older men or older white men who were mentoring young scientists of color. There, there wasn't any guidebook really. It was all about um, maybe some common sense and just, you know, being respectful of the students in your lab, appreciative and open-minded of the points of view that they bring. And there's a real um, a, a kindness to Bob Garrison that, just transcends everything he does. He's just, you know, such a decent person. And, and I realize we can say that about a number of people, but, but yeah, I think that was what was so special though, is he uh, really treated his graduate students fairly. And he always had a number of international students in his labs too. I mean, he had projects all over the world, you know, looking at uh, marine sedimentary sequences that are organic rich from a lot of different basins ar around the world. Um, and he had a, a real and continues to, and I value that I'm still in touch with him, just a great um, can-do attitude about uh, students working in teams and really valuing um, a range of opinions and all the specialties that we would bring. And, and so I felt always treated fairly by him. And 
any two would look for additional resources. I mean, I, I did come with an NSF uh, graduate research fellowship, and so I was fortunate to have that support. But there were times when different sorts of scholarships would come up, um, either for students of color or that were tied to, um, you know, certain kinds of field work. Uh, or I, I think actually by the time I was mid uh, career grad school, like maybe third year, uh, there was a, a graduate opportunities office where uh, there were they were starting to develop kind of mentoring pods. Um, but just the you know the the basic good human being kindness in him that treats everyone with respect is such a uh, foundational part I think of being a good mentor and of course now what we've learned is that you know it helps if there are multiple levels of students in a lab where mentoring is going on it's also helpful if uh, advisors and and mentors are open to learning more about the culture that the students come from and and I did uh, talk about my family a lot to to Bob to my advisor and you know he met my parents um, before I graduated and you know I sh shared some of the you know academic side of my family and and found yeah things that we had in common and so I think those combination of things really did um, you know transcend a lot of what we now you know recognize as sort of fundamental mentoring practices but mm. yeah mm -hmm. so I was fortunate that way because I'm sure you can understand that at the same time I was having uh, what was generally a very good graduate school experience, there were other students of color at Santa Cruz that felt completely isolated. And the university's changed so much now. It is, it's Hispanic serving, at least among the undergraduate student population. There's still lacks, uh, there still lacks diversity at the graduate level um, when you consider you know what you see at some other institutions so they have come a long way but it was it was very isolating for a lot of particularly african-american graduate students at santa cruz in the 80s so so yes to this day i feel i'm so fortunate and and it was a good choice for me going there and and yeah and you've met him and know what a terrific individual he is and as you said we're, we're also dedicated anytime there was a call out to uh join and celebrate uh Bob and his life's work, graduate students from, yes, stretching back to the 70s, I think, came uh, or sent messages, right, mm -hmm. <laughs> to be read. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and it's funny, I do remember some international students, like maybe someone from Russia was like there speaking to them, right. was like, I won't miss it, like oh, even though I was only I here know. for a year. I yeah. know, and there's so many things about our discipline that I enjoy and that I miss since we all have not been able to travel this past year. But uh, Bob Garrison planted the seed early about working with international communities of scientists and the opportunity to travel in my first summer. So after my first year of graduate school, that summer I joined him on a trip to Israel. Uh, he was working with Israeli uh, geoscientists and micropaleontologists on some unique uh, phosphate-rich units that uh, are Cretaceous in age, so they're older than the unit I was working on, the Monterey Formation, but introduced me again to um, international scientists that he anticipated I'd have things in common with, and there, 
uh, is a great micropaleontology tradition at the Geological Survey of Israel. So it was great to oh, meet. Cool. Yeah, and ever since then, pretty much every year since then, yeah, I've been on some international project or another, and now within the Ocean Discovery Program community, IODP, and I felt like, yeah, I was just trying to follow him because he'd gone out on IODP cruises and kept traveling internationally. So, um, yeah, so again, just very fortunate to receive early uh, mentoring. Mm -hmm. And it's so interesting, too, like, um, I think in academia there is kind of a conversation about, like, first-generation academics and, right. like, how it can be kind of hard and I, but I've also seen people who are not first-generation academics whose parents have PhDs right. who feel a lot of pressure. So it's so interesting in your case that your parents are pretty like, do what you want, and then you mm -hmm. still ended up kind of going in the academic trajectory. Right. Isn't that interesting? And I do know uh, other of my contemporaries that have a, a parent or two that are professors and they felt pressure the whole time. And I just don't know if I would have responded well to that. And, but I joke with my oldest sister, she's president of DePauw University in Indiana. And so she went the straight university administrative route with her PhD. Uh, she knew that's what she wanted to do, although she took a long break. Uh, you know, not that we're competing, but I got my PhD before her, Ooh. even though I'm younger. I know. <laughs> and then after I was done, she thought, oh, I guess I should go back and get mine, you know, if I want to do university administration. But I think it's the oldest daughter, uh, and she worked closely with my dad at University of California, Irvine. She worked in student affairs for many years. And of course, he was encouraging her the whole time to get um, an advanced degree and, um, you know, maybe go to law school. He, you know, he always had plans. He was a, he was a great mentor too, to his students. But he will plan your whole life. This is what we used to joke, plan your whole life. So I thought, okay, I'm just gonna go over here and study these rocks and fossils. You can leave me alone. It's cool. It's cool. And when I said that I was going to graduate school, of course, you know, the family was happy. But they wouldn't ask me every year, are you done? When are you gonna be done? Again, just figured I found a field I like and you know, left me alone to work, were always supportive. And then when I was done, they were like, oh my God, you, you know, you're done. And yep, start my... <laughs> so yeah, it was, I am just thankful to this day because I, with the work I do, again, with broader communities and first-gen students, students of color that select um, geoscience as a field, there's so much explaining to do, you know, to many, people in our communities, oh my God. It's, and I've talked to parents when I was running high school, when I was running programs for high school students, you know, conversations with parents about, well, one, where were we taking their kids, you know, when we're going out to national parks? Oh, you know, wow. what in the world? Yeah, because, you know, there's a lot of risks with that. I mean, we're always safe, but it's a big deal, you know, yeah. to take a group of, you know, a dozen high school students out to the Grand Canyon or the Utah parks. Um, and so, yeah, a lot of what I shared was what the profession is all about, how I got into it, that I didn't really even know that much about the profession and that it's okay, you know, to be asked, what is it about this field and what do you do with your degree? We still, in different conversations I have with other geoscientists about 
workforce training and how to inspire the next generation, we feel like we have a, just a persistent image problem. Because people can, you know, explain what a computer scientist does or engineer or, you know, certainly a medical doctor. And then here we are, although with so many environmental topics um, in the news constantly, you know, from weather extremes to, of course, climate change and environmental shifts, there's more of a direct connection now. Yeah, it is so funny. I guess it's I guess it's partly like earth science is so broad that it, we have the people who are like trying to combat and understand climate change and like all of oil company geology. Right. And yeah, there's yeah, it's just a big range. And I, I agree. It's like an image problem. You know, you see like paleontologists in the movies. Yes. They're all like cowboys. Cowboys. <laughs> or they think we're all Indiana Jones. And, you know, he's in archaeologists. It's yeah, it, it's still a challenge. But, you know. It's what we do, but that's why I love communicating, you know, the, what I do and just what geoscience is. I still just believe that uh, they're, they're, that one, we're fortunate as scientists for the kind of work that we get to do, the sorts of questions we ask, the interdisciplinarity of our discipline, all the things you can do within our science degree. You know, I, I know some argue or, you know, there are frustrations with the marketability of some degrees in earth science, depending on your focus. But when I just look at, you know, modern careers and just the possibilities, you can, yeah, do journalism. And I know you motivate in science communication. There's, of course, the environmental work. And, and of course, I work a lot in deep time, geoscience. And, and there's always a worry, though, when you're working in a museum community, about funding and the, you know, dedication to preserving collections. I mean, we take up a lot of space. Is it worth the money to, you know, catalog and curate? But that's where a lot of, you know, digitization of collection comes into discussion and preserving and sharing things that way. So I still think the outlook is very good for uh, future earth scientists, but we still have a lot of information sharing to do. Mm -hmm. So I guess let's see if we can back up to your career and then kind of, yeah, because I guess just for a, a primer, like you did a pretty traditional academic career and then started changing. So yeah, and I know you don't like, and neither do I, the term like alternative careers. Right. <laughs> um, so let's walk through your non-alternative career and then kind of, yeah, then see if we can discuss like other careers in okay and uh in the you know the, the disclaimer of I'm not the best planner even though it seems like I've had this ideal career I don't know how I ended up being traditional but I did share in an earlier response that when the opportunity came to be a faculty member at SF State you know I didn't really realize they were tracking me in grad school I was certainly in contact with the faculty who mentored me as an undergrad, because Santa Cruz isn't that far from San Francisco, and San Francisco's my hometown. You know, my mom uh, still lives here in the city, and so I would keep in touch. You know, and and so when I looked at job possibilities, I I thought I was going to work at the USGS. I that was really the only professional environment that I knew, and. 
I did, though, I, although I took, I did a stint with an oil company. I don't know, it's the obli obligatory, oh, let's just try to see what it's like, see what it's like. So lived in Houston, you know, for a fall quarter, and, and it was fine, and there's lots of applications in the industry if you're a micropaleontologist, but I didn't think that was my thing. But with the SF State offer, it had, you know, obvious um, advantages to me and very sentimental about working in my hometown and at my alma mater and you know my parents met at SF State so Joyce I, I felt like too I guess it was just my legacy you know it always be connected to the place but it's fine love the institution and I'm a proud I'm a proud alum and you know a proud I'm in, in an adjunct professor uh, role there now but so I said okay this, this seems like a really great choice and I can be comfortable doing this job but I was also honestly scared to death because I knew what it was going to be in terms of the teaching load and I didn't feel like I was the best um, performer if you will because that's part of what you are you know when you're a faculty member when you're teaching a lot is you you know want to have those kinds of presentation skills so I knew I'd need to come up to speed there didn't have that much experience teaching as a as a graduate student but there were so many benefits you know to to far outweigh what the challenges were going to be, uh, but it still meant balancing a lot. You know, I was I still wanted to remain active in research and had just finished a, a ocean drilling program. Then it was called ODP, Ocean Drilling Program, but it's IODP now, International Ocean Discovery Program. And so I finished a cruise in the Japan Sea the year before, so I had all these micropaleontology samples, so I had that work, I had my teaching load, and I had service work. I just, just like I don't say no that often now, I didn't then, you know, school, and I'm in my hometown, so like my high school would ask me to come out, my middle school, and then some of the, you know, diversity and geoscience initiatives were starting. So, so it was a lot, and I just again thought, wow, you know, maybe I should have looked at in a, a different kind of opportunity, just be a researcher somewhere, or just something simpler than all this. And somehow I stayed 22 years, though with all that, with the years where I thought, this is crazy, I'm doing too much. And then I started doing administration, I mean, as you said in the intro, you know, I was a department chair, and I had two different associate dean roles at various times at SF State and but I still didn't see myself as traditional I just thought well because in some ways this is really odd you know I've come back to my home institution I'm not I'm not at an R1 you know I'm just at a teaching heavy California State University and I'm doing all these other things to promote or science to education communities, which wasn't super popular. You know, in the beginning of my career, you know, you really had to find people to work with that wanted to do that kind of teacher training. And it wasn't until a number of initiatives around the science standards really um, came into, yeah, that's interesting. The standards for teaching science were scattered you know the the state of california certainly always had some and as you, you know you would expect in other areas too but there wasn't the the national effort to really align a lot of science practices especially teaching through inquiry and so seeing that um, sort of movement take place came at a good time 
when I had like-minded colleagues in the geoscience department at SF State that were really motivated to do work with teachers and, and really take advantage of opportunities to diversify the discipline. So some of the first of the diversity programs that I directed came at that time. Um, but to get closer to answering your questions about, yes, starting careers in that way, and I, I guess because I saw my duties in the faculty position a lot different than some of my peers because of my crazy habit of doing way too much, you know, with all these partnerships and like, well, in my mind, I'm not doing just the expected professor thing. I'm setting up all of these different kinds of partnerships and in, you know, the most serendipitous way, it was those kinds of partnerships and my early willingness to really, really, in the end, just want to do the right thing, you know, to support communities and teachers that wanted to know more about science. It really led me to, you know, just diving in to what are the best ways to communicate our science. And, and so my career leaning more towards that feeling like that's the science I want to do, you know, that's what I want to share in the second phase of my career. And, and like I always do, I probably would have just kept working at SF State and being, you know, what I thought was a, you know, a good administrator and bringing faculty together across disciplines. But when the opportunity came to work at the Museum of Paleontology at UC Berkeley, it just seemed to fit at the time with this, you know, passion that just I kept coming back to about sharing science with broader communities. And, and when you are a paleontologist by training, you know, to be able to work professionally um, at a paleo museum has plenty of yep. So people thought I was a little risky though, a little crazy. Kind of, it's like, why would you leave? You're an associate dean. Don't you want to be a dean? Do you want to, you know, be like your sister? You could be a vice president. Like, mm -mm -mm. at the end of the day, you know, I love paleo, love geology, and I want people to be as excited about our field as, as I am, and certainly as I was and felt, you know, when I was learning my skills. So yeah, so that's how I ended up, didn't plan. They asked me to apply. They had to ask me a couple times. I thought, I don't know, it might be kind of risky, but I, I go for it. So I'm not, you know, risk averse. So just, you know, why not? And, and it's been a good thing. You know, there were frustrations in the beginning. There can be with new jobs and just, you know, na navigating Berkeley and figuring out this role that was very different, you know, from my administrative and faculty role, and just hitting some good strides now, you know, eight and a half years in, have all kinds of exciting grants to work with other museums and support graduate students who are interested in diversity and inclusion work and, you know, showcase our collections and ways that make reaching audiences, you know, through the virtual sharing of collections exciting. Mm -hmm. So, so yeah, when you were at San Francisco State, were you basically like setting up programs with high school and middle school teachers in the area? Right. And then you kind of could probably draw on those networks in the position once you started at Berkeley too. Right. And the nice thing is um, my predecessor in the position that I have now, we started working together Oh, I probably worked with her for a good 10 years before it even occurred to me 
that I would ever be working at the Museum of Paleontology. And she was a former middle school teacher and was you know, absolutely dedicated to bringing resources and training and professional development opportunities to middle school and high school teachers. Yes, so I joined her in those efforts, so got to know her through that, got to know the Berkeley resources, the virtual resources, their websites were really the go-to place. I mean, they still are, but certainly in the 90s when the web was in its infancy, that really was the Museum of Paleontology website, you know, the source for those of us teaching paleo, whether it was to middle and high school teachers or to our own students. So yeah, in my undergrad classes. So yes, so there was definitely a connect, an education connection um, that utilized the Berkeley resources even from my years at, at San Francisco State. Mm -hmm. Wow, and so, how big is like the team kind of in the Berkeley education system? And is it like within the museum or like within, you know, how do you interact with like the earth science or if that's what it's called departments? Okay. Like so there, um, the history of our museum and we're celebrating our 100th anniversary this spring. So next year, next month in uh, mid-March is our Jubilee. And the museum has been in five or six locations on the Berkeley campus. And there was a time in the past when it was more closely affiliated with earth sciences than with integrative biology. So the closest academic department now is integrative biology. And, and we are considered an organized research unit at Berkeley. Uh, so we're not an academic department, but um, yeah, a research unit that interfaces closely though with academic departments. So when graduate students that are interested in pursuing paleontology are admitted to Berkeley, they typically come through integrative biology um, and then they're associated with the museum as well. Sometimes they come through earth science, but uh, it's a common that um, graduate students uh, work and in the museum, support our projects. And for education and outreach though, we are a small team. So I supervise a science writer, an editor, a web manager, and a graphic artist. And we've got project scientists that also lead efforts that are grant dependent. Um, so, you know, there's a lot of soft money support um, or well, we're always looking for more, but we, it's common, you know, for folks to be on soft money. And, but we're able to really just turn out, you know, a lot of different kinds of materials. And, but the reason that's so is that we do utilize uh, the faculty in integrative biology and also in earth science as advisors on projects. You know, we have partners at other museums that, uh, partnerships that are also part of our collaborative efforts. Um, and then the, the students get training in both, you know, specimen-based, um, you know, content that comes from whatever their fossil specialty is. But what's really great about the times we live in is most graduate students do want some training in education and outreach or science communication or, you know, diversity, equity, inclusion. So uh, we feel like we have a lot of helping hands at the museum um, in doing education and outreach. And, it, and it's, it's, it's rare to have a large museum, a large paleontology museum associated with a public university. 
you know, mo most of the large museums around the country, you know, they're federally funded, like, you know, the Smithsonian, or they're parts of big cities that, you know, the National, or the American Museum of Natural History in New York, or the Field Museums. Yeah, the LA County Natural History Museum, yep, that's funded by LA County. And, and there's faculty, there's faculty, say, at U USC or UCLA that are associated with the museum, and of course the field, you got people from the University of Chicago that associated, but we're actually, yeah, our museum is on the campus. We're, we're not a big public museum, though we're primarily a research museum. But it's, yeah, it's, but it's just, it's a very unique um, setting and a great opportunity for someone with my background. You know, honestly, I think it would have been tough to start there, and so I share this with uh, graduate students uh, postdocs, early careers that are looking at education and outreach-focused careers, and and I share honestly that it's hard to do that right out of graduate school, and that many of us who do the work currently, we didn't plan. The opportunities came our way, and we took advantage, and so the yeah the trajectory and you know the the plan to an education outreach career is hard to map out. You know, it exists, but they're just, yeah, they're unique and different positions. And I just try to be really open-minded about the advice that I share and always encourage people. And, and yes, get away from that. You don't have to be traditional. There's not, uh, you know, whatever, whoever coined that alternative career, is your career is what you make it. So yeah. it is what you make it. I thought, shoot, there's some faculty that might be miserable right now, though, and are envious of what, you know, because it's a grind. You just want to be prepared for, for what it is. And, and, and there's certainly a lot of challenges working in a museum and public museum and a, a, a museum at a public university, you know, with funding and you know, and sustaining what we have, um, you know, and no jobs are easy, but but it's certainly been nice, and I feel fortunate at Berkeley. There's been a legacy of commitment to education and outreach, but it's not without, you know, just constant effort, and a lot of my job is grant writing, managing the grants we have, and, you know, being open to different kinds of opportunities. Um, so I think one just, yeah, has to be be ready for the careers that, you know, they think they want, so. Yeah, and uh, yeah, and that's interesting that it's, even in your current position, you still kind of have like all of these kind of balls that you're juggling, it sounds like. Right, right. The writing and the looking for money. I know, <laughs> I think, why do we do this to ourselves? But, but you know, we're academics, that's what we do, and I've, and the work associated with the grants is so enjoyable that I'm like, all right, it is worth doing this. So we're, it's just part of what I expect to do, even though I complain sometimes and I'm just like, oh, I'm so tired. This gets so crazy. I don't even know why I'm <laughs> doing all this work or why am I going for this grant when I still need to finish up this other work? But somehow they all connect. But yes, I, I just, I don't know a single museum professional that, um, yeah, isn't juggling um, some grant cycle. And yeah, and that pretty much, I guess, extends to 
faculty that we know in science as well. Yeah, it's just part of our routine and um, you know, I'm sure not everyone is like this, but I, especially now and, and the attention to diversity and inclusion, there are so many good opportunities to, to try to do things differently in that space, you know, and there are mo more folks that are stepping in some leadership positions that uh, want to try, I think, to do things a little differently. So I'm looking out for those opportunities and, you know, joining forces with some new kinds of partnerships that I think are, are worth the time to make. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I'm just thinking right now, like, paleontology is kind of an interesting case because it's very, like, museum-ready, and it's mm-hmm. kind of outreach-ready, too, because it's it's kind of more relatable, maybe, than some other aspects of earth science. And I guess, yeah, how, how do you see, like, do you think that we'll, like, grow the outreach component, or do you think it'll be, like, a paleontology kind of gateway for a long time? Yeah, and, and gateway is a, a great term because you can make connections almost instantly, you know, especially with young people when it comes to paleontology. Even though I shared that I wasn't so much a dinosaur kid, but, but I was still, you know, wowed and blown away when I would hear scientists, especially people who worked, you know, with, with fossils and, you know, geologists talk about their work because it yet seems so exotic and different and exciting. And I feel that we are capable of getting the attention, you know, of people when it comes to, you know, exciting new discoveries and um, things that we're continuing to try to learn, you know, about paleontology. So, so it's a cool hook. Uh, but sometimes keeping the attention because, you know, in a, in a recent workshop that I participated in, you know, I, I feel like I'm really good at just, you know, sharing enthusiasm for what I do and always wanting to encourage people to consider our discipline. But, you know, I was asked directly, well, how realistic is it to work in a museum and, you know, your long trajectory to where you got is not attractive to some. I mean, maybe you don't want to spend, you know, 10 years in college for the two degrees and then all the faculty years until now. But, um, but yeah, as we know, I mean, there's no easy path. But, but I think what's been exciting about paleontology, you know, not that it's ever been out of style, but the media really reports, you know, heavily on a lot of you know, paleontology, you know, they report a lot on climate extremes and, you know, geological hazards, but there's often a lot of excitement around the new tools that we use in paleontology and, you know, new ways of interpreting life of the past. So that's a great sell. I, I suppose some of my communication is getting uh, students, young people to think beyond that paleontologists only work at museums, you know, there are a lot of places where uh, we apply our craft, and many of us have training rooted in other disciplines. You know, many times I'll say first that I'm a geologist. You know, I'm an earth scientist. I mean, my first degree is geology, and even my um, earth science PhD, as I shared, you know, I was in a sedimentology lab, so have a total affinity, you know, for that too. And so, but yeah, a lot comes back to how we communicate our science and and how people try to understand and connect what it is that we do 
in the kind of larger STEM field. So you, like we've mentioned that you've been kind of thinking about diversity, equity, inclusion in sciences, especially geosciences for your whole career. Right. And because you are a black woman in geosciences, you probably are kind of bearing a lot of the, I guess, like, you know, senior scientist role in that area. So I wonder if you can just talk to me about what that experience was like, you know, in the 80s and 90s, and then especially in the last year, how how we can look ahead. Right. Well, I should share first that I honestly have not looked for validation in the diversity, equity, and inclusion work that I do. It always felt like it was an important extension of being a woman of color in geoscience that I just wanted to share with others, that others like me, that you know, it's a great and exciting field. There are opportunities, there are ways of connecting what we do to the communities that we live in and that we want to serve. And so I approached it a lot from that, like just come join me, you know, kind of thing. And even when I knew the work would be frowned upon, I mean, I guess I was a little crazy in graduate school to try and work on this, but as we shared, and you've met my advisor, you know, he was very supportive of his graduate students, and he never said don't do it, but he worried, as many of my advisors and mentors did over the years, and even my peers now, that, you know, aren't you doing too much? You know, do you really need to do that as well as all this other stuff. So I guess I just, you know, made it part of what I did. And then somehow it always, well, it always made sense, you know, made sense to me, work I enjoyed. And then it just became connected, you know, to all the other parts of what's traditionally expected for faculty so that you would improve your teaching, you know, be inclusive in your classroom. And then when the opportunities came to do professional development for teachers, well, naturally, uh, the teachers in Bay Area public schools serve, you know, audience serves students of color. Uh, and so then it became really important then to show that, you know, what uh, you're capable of doing, you know, with professional degree in science. And, and so, yeah, I took pride in being a role model and I, um, I, I often said though, and I even said it today that, you know, I'm not going to do this work forever. I'm, I'm really trying to support other students, students of all ethnicities and gender identities that want to do this work. It's important that you do it. And with the kind of publications that we see more commonly now about, you know, how to mentor and advise and support students that are underrepresented, then it really does take the whole of us as a community of geoscientists to change the culture and the climate of our departments. You know, we recruit these students and and say that, you know, we welcome you to the profession, but then we really don't, you know, and then we just leave them out there. So I feel like there's kind of a, a third generation of projects that I'm working on now. You know, the first generation was just getting kids, you know, super excited about earth science. And so the kids, I was usually working with high school students, the first of the big diversity programs we were funded for at San Francisco State, uh, inspired high school students to consider geoscience by coming out in the field with us. 
and um, then the sort of second generation was um, getting faculty more invested in leading programs because I again have said periodically I'm not gonna be here all the time or I'm not gonna always be the one to lead like help me out you know (laughs) and so now those opportunities have extended into the really I think the expectation that institutions need to step up you know it can't be about changing the student it can't always be about the same group of faculty or professionals leading all the diversity programs you know it really needs to transfer to you know whole systematic changes in the way that we train you know individuals that have historically been excluded so I've, I've ridden all those waves you know I'm still here and still feeling energized but again the nice thing about being in the, the different position you know being in a museum is I can see it from that angle you know I'm, I'm not in the classroom regularly now, which is fine. I, you know, teach teachers or mentor graduate students, and then they go out and teach. And so I feel like I have a lot to offer, having been through all those waves of other programs. I just love sharing the experiences that I've had. And and and, but there have been times when I've been burned out, and I look for signs in other colleagues of color to try to you know be supportive of them. If, they're feeling burned out. Sometimes you have to step away from the work. And maybe there were some years I did, but but yeah, I'm feeling pretty energized now. I mean, maybe, I don't know, it's just this year of being at home, right? Teaching remotely, but you know, you take stock of of where you are. But but we, we do have to be mindful. You know, we as professional geoscientists who care about diversity inclusion, you know, we need to be mindful of who we're expecting does this work you know to change it and really it should be all of us so i just try to keep sharing those messages that you know we can do this together happy to get you know us directed in this but um yeah at some point you know it's nice to ensure that i can hand some things off and and others feel inspired to do the work I know you're feeling like those people are around now that it can be handed and that yeah. people are kind of taking more of a collective responsibility. I do, and, and but I, so I'm always optimistic and there are times when, yeah, I sense people aren't stepping up. But I gave a talk today to the, the UCMP, so the UC Museum of Paleontology, my workplace, we have weekly seminars. so. It was my turn this week and I talked about where we are, you know, with our diversity projects and what our plans are and the collective input because we do have a diversity working group now at the museum. So if I'd given that same talk seven, eight years ago when I first started, it would have been, I'm doing this, well, my program is this. I'm, but now it, it, it is more about we because there are some graduate students doing some amazing things to transition uh, in-person labs to the virtual space. So a, you know, a year ago when we all realized um, we had to transition to remote learning, uh, there were graduate students that took the lead in transferring some labs we were doing with community college students. And it's been great to watch that um, really take off and that's just one example, uh, but I think the 
the concerted effort around the time that you know many of us groups that traditionally hadn't been motivated by diversity responded to the Black Lives Movement, then that really did open you know a door of opportunity and many other um, black professionals you know we share this where we say we were a little bit ignored you know for many years of our work saying that it's not working and you know you can't just flip a coin and say okay now we're going to do diversity and it's going to work and you you just you need more investment you know from on high so there's you know it's it's still going to take more than what we've even seen this past year, even though departments and universities are stepping up in ways they didn't before, and there are some different funding streams, but, you know, we, but we still have to do the work, and it's more work to change attitudes and, you know, the systemic and institutionalized racism and barriers. But for, but for me, as someone who's been working, you know, 30 years on these problems and challenges, I do feel more supported now and inspired by what I'm seeing. So, so that's a good thing. And, and you know, my, my dad, my mom, I mean, they were such role models in this area because they always were driven to support and work with community programs and, you know, the things my father did early in his career to really try to establish a different paradigm for evaluating communities of color, you know, in the field of psychology and I watched him be a really terrific mentor. He was just so great about sharing his time and inspiring others to, you know, go forward. So, um, you know, he had all sorts of sayings about um, each one, teach one, and pass it on. And, and so I find myself doing lots of that now. And, um, yeah, and getting energized while doing that. And also realizing if there's some time I feel like I want to focus on something different, there, yeah, there's lots of really good practices. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it's one thing I noticed that you said at the at the beginning of like kind of that answer is that we need to focus, I guess, on like serving communities. And I feel like that part of the dialogue is like part of maybe what's missing in like the culture of like academic geosciences is like. I had very few conversations during my, you know, academic learning mm -hmm. career that were about serving the community. It was much more like, well, we're doing science and we're academics, so we can do kind of whatever we want. And there's not a lot of like, oh, we're actually doing this for the community. We're publicly funded for the most part. And that's like, that might be part of the attitude shift that's needed to. Right. Y yes, because. It's been a slow change. I, I do hear, you know, pure academics mention it more. Some of it, too, you wonder, you know, with the COVID crisis and seeing, you know, all the disparities um, in health and health care and the way communities are treated. You know, there was just so many, been so many shocking things of the last couple of years that have brought injustice to the surface that, it's hard to ignore and, it, and it's hard to keep the ivory tower wall up when there's so much, so many disadvantaged communities. But I know it's, it's not normal in many academic conversations to lead with that, that, you know, we're doing this work because or we want to, yeah, see how communities can utilize the information. 
but it sure does come up um, quite a bit more now. Yeah. Um, and it, it wouldn't, it's not a stretch. I feel like people I kind know. of want to act like they're siloed. And yeah, the, I don't think, you know, that the ivory tower is kind of good for no one. Mm-hmm. And it's like, you know, if we're talking about, you know, deep time history, you're usually talking about climate change and that it directly adversely affects more so communities mm-hmm. of color. And like, yeah, it's, yeah, it's pretty frustrating that <laughs> we're not a little further on right i know really people so you know i'm always am i optimistic well we'll get there more people are talking about it but it's yeah it's still rare which is unfortunate for um faculty and departments in stem fields unless it's clearly you know health science or you know public science but we'll we'll see i mean i've advised some programs over the years that were about, um, you know, building connections to, um, you know, earth hazards and sustainability and, um, you know, how people connect to the earth for resources and all that. So, you know, it does come up, especially when earth science departments are looking at the future of the degree and keeping students and recruiting those applications to applied disciplines. But but yeah, in graduate school, you oh, don't often see, you know, you're not always, yeah, encouraged to, you know, to have those conversations unless your discipline, you know, directly, yep, impacts. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but I guess that, yeah, one thing we can do is keep talking about how our each of our disciplines interacts and like you said it's like for the future of the degrees and the future of the science it's totally necessary and you know it's the reason we talk about dinosaurs and departments and you know (laughs) kind of looking ahead to the future that's for sure so i know that you have worked with a group called no time for silence that's kind of giving some advice about some of the diversity equity inclusion and what people can do so we'll link to that and also some of the virtual programs that you have um, at UCMP, um, so people can kind of see what you're up to there. Oh, thank you. That would be great. Yeah, and otherwise, um, thank you so much for your time, and I really appreciate it. Love catching up with you. I know, it's been so fun, and thank you so much for reaching out, and I hope that we can stay in touch, and certainly if I get back to New Zealand, be wonderful to see you and of course anytime you're you're back in the states or in california but um yeah and i just really appreciated being part of your podcast so thank you it's been been fun that's it for us this week thank you so much for listening and we hope you enjoyed the show please follow us on our social media pages and reach out to us anytime and we'll see you next time